go to the Gospel of Mark. And this morning I want to speak to you about feasting or fasting. Mark chapter 2. We're finding our way through having John Mark teach us the ministry actually of the Apostle Peter telling us of the life of Christ so uniquely in this gospel, so powerfully, so forcefully. And we're going to begin this morning at Mark chapter 2, verse 13. If you'll remember, we have a situation where Jesus is a rabbi with smika. He's one with authority, with power. He can interpret the law. And we'll remember that when a rabbi was ready to choose his disciples, he would typically go back to the rabbinical schools and uh, pick up the young 15 or 16-year-olds that had already memorized Torah, Old Testament, and Mishnah and uh, were powerful in knowing that. Most of the young kids, boys, Hebrew boys, that couldn't do that basically were dropouts and went uh, from rabbinic school to uh, their profession and their trades. And uh, most of the young boys did that. Everybody, every boy went through this rabbinic training, but only those who could make it would get to that age and rabbis would come then to gather their disciples. So when we have Rabbi Jesus coming and choosing his disciples, it's, it's just completely the opposite of what was normal and what was expected. And so to be called by a rabbi at this age and in your uh, basic uh, trade uh, was quite unusual. And this is where we pick up the story as Jesus is going to call, of all people, Matthew a tax collector. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Again, this is the, the norm and the typical calling that a rabbi would give to a student uh, when he approved them, when he would uh, really evaluate their ability to discern Scripture, understand it, and question them rabbinically. He would then, if he wanted to choose them, say, follow me. And that was your in. That was your green card. You could go. So for him to go up to this tax collector, not ask him any questions, not review anything, but of course Christ knew his heart. Christ knew his destiny. Christ knew his future. Even in the midst of being a tax collector, one who, who couldn't make it in rabbinical school, one who couldn't get by, he had to end up working for the government, the Roman government, who had authority over the Jews. And here he was a tax collector, taking the money of his own people to give to the Romans authority, Roman authorities and keep some himself. Jesus went up to this guy, known as a publican, a tax collector. And he said, Matthew, follow me. That's why Matthew set the money down. Matthew stepped away from the table. His calling was there. Something in his heart had longed for God, even though he had failed, or even though he had chosen another way of life, and even though he tried to make his way through. Just like you, God called you to step away from the table of this world and follow me. And so Matthew immediately followed him. Now that is wonderful. Now, what happened? Well, he did what anybody would do. It says this, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples 
for there were many who followed him. Matthew said, let's have a party. This is awesome. Come to my house, Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, don't we? Uh, Jesus had a thing for tax collectors. I think he just loved to turn the world upside down. He picked you, didn't he? Messed your whole family up. He's called out you, and Matthew says, I want to have a party. I'm going to follow a rabbi. And when you follow rabbi, you understood this one principle. If I am a disciple of that rabbi, I am going to become that rabbi. That's the whole purpose of discipleship, that you would become a rabbi after your rabbi. You would do the things your rabbi did. You would say the things your rabbi said. And you would teach the things your rabbi taught you. He left his profession. He left it all. And he threw a party. And he only could invite the people he knew. Which was a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. But he said, come to my house. I've got to introduce you to somebody. My rabbi. How many of you have introduced somebody to your rabbi? You've told him about your rabbi. He said, there's a party at my house. I was that, but now I'm this. That's what he's doing. And Jesus is comfortable. He's reclined at the table. That's the Eastern custom. He's at his house with tax collectors and sinners. And they were all reclining together with Jesus and his disciples. Many followed him. And listen to this. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, hey, Why does your master, why does your rabbi, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, (laughs) I like this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees thought you would get dirty if you hung with the wrong crowd. Jesus said, I'll make anyone clean. If they hang with me, that's the difference. I remember being in Russia back in 1992 and we went into Putin Square to to minister, to to, uh, go and and hand out Bibles and to minister down there by the black market. And I was with about 70 different pastors as we were distributing the gospel. And there were a number of them that got up in arms and said, why are we going into such a dark place? Because we're the light. Are you kidding me? They had that sense that we could get cooties. Demons would jump on us or there's bad people there. Yes! You're not here on this planet to live in a mountaintop and get as clean as you can. You're here to be in the world, not of the world, and to invite everyone to meet your master, the one who touched you and can touch them and cleanse from all sin and sickness and disease. Oh, praise God. So we have a problem with the Pharisees, don't we? Yeah. Well, Jesus deals with this in Luke 7, 33. Jesus said this, For John the Baptist has come eating eating no bread or drinking no wine, and you say he's got a demon. He's telling the Pharisees, he says, the Son of Man's come eating and drinking, and you say, hey, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So what do you want? 
You got one who, who abstains from all food and this and that, and, and because he's preaching the kingdom, you call him a demon. I come to reach the lost, the sick, and minister to them, and you call me a drunk and a glutton. But I love what he says here. He says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What does he mean by that? In Luke 7, we go back up a little further to verse 29. He says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, and having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So what this is saying is that these people that John ministered to were convicted of their sin and were baptized by John. It's the sinners, the tax collectors, the publicans. They're the ones who ran into the water to make straight the way for the Lord in their own hearts. It's the Pharisees who refused to step in the water of John the Baptist. Not going to receive that message. So now Jesus comes to begin preaching, and they said, we're not going to receive your message either. Jesus goes on, and he says, to what then shall I compare these people? Talking about the Pharisees, huh? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you didn't weep. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist came and sang a dirge. He sang a song of repentance and sorrow. Come, as children in the marketplace declare for the response of the people. But you wouldn't even come to the dirge of John. Well, I came singing a dance. I came to sing and rejoice. But you wouldn't even respond to me. What am I to do with you? Well, they're not satisfied with that, are they? So they go on, and they go in verse 18 of Mark chapter 2. Let's go back to our text. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests or the wedding children fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. Now Jesus makes a very bold statement here, and this is the point of our topic today is Jesus calls himself what? The bridegroom. The bridegroom. Now the Pharisees are a little upset that he is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Seems comfortable with them. Jesus says they're who I came for. The sick, those in sin. That's our sickness, isn't it? You see, the Pharisees didn't even recognize their own sickness. Their own sickness was sin. The one who is forgiven much loves much. He taught that to a Pharisee once at his own house, Simon's house. We'll probably get to that later. But what he says now is, well, listen, John, he's trying to, what the Pharisees are now trying to do is put a wedge between 
John the Baptist's disciples who are starting to pick up following Jesus and Jesus' disciples. So there was a regular fast day. Typically Wednesdays and Fridays was the fast day of the Pharisees. And they were fasting. And they're saying, hey, look it. You know, we're fasting. We're doing what the law requires, what is right. We're, we're you know, uh, bowing before God and, and, and opening our, our heart towards the Lord and being as religious as we can. And your, your disciples don't fast. Jesus' response is, why would you fast at a wedding? Why would you? The bridegroom is here. Now, who is he declaring to be the, the bridegroom? Himself. Now, the reason he says this is he's echoing John the Baptist's own words. In in John 3.29, when they ask John who he is, what his ministry is, John says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You see, in Jewish weddings... There was the friend of the bridegroom, the one who would announce the coming of the bridegroom. He would blow the shofar and prepare the bride to get ready because the bridegroom comes. What's interesting in our culture is we've reversed the importance of the wedding party. We in America, in the West, we celebrate the bride. We dress her up. We let her prance down the aisle. It's all about her. This is her day. But not in the Eastern culture. It's all about the bridegroom. It's about him coming for his bride. It's the celebration of his entrance to come take his wife. And so the friend would come to declare and to pronounce, The bridegroom cometh! The bridegroom cometh! Wasn't he a voice crying in the wilderness? And he heard the voice of the bridegroom. And so Jesus responds in like fashion to their argument of, Why don't your people fast? It's because the bridegroom's here! Let the party get started! It's time for a wedding feast! Jewish weddings last seven days, sometimes up to two weeks. The bride and the groom would fast before it, but when it came time for the celebration of the bridegroom and the bride, it was party time. Joyous and wondrous. The last thing you would do, it would be a sign of complete disrespect to fast at a wedding. Absolutely. Friends of the bridegroom, the children of the bridegroom, those are all the guests, those who were invited, those to attend. For many, it was the biggest party of their lives, the greatest moment of their lives to remember. So fasting would have been an insult. Hey, don't you find it interesting that in keeping with this, the very first miracle that Jesus performed, where was it? It was a wedding feast. Why was that the introduction to Messiah? Why was that the sign of the beginning of his ministry? Because the bridegroom is here. He showed up with his wine. With his new wine. And so the bridegroom came. 
The first miracle is that the bridegroom came. And so what would happen is the bridegroom would come to the parent's house and speak to the father. The first stage of a Jewish wedding was the betrothal. And he would come to the father's house bringing the cup of redemption. You're familiar with that cup? It's the third cup of the Passover feast. It's the cup of purchasing, redeeming. He would go to the Father and he would give the Father his word, his covenant promise for this bride. He would speak that word and he would declare, I will never leave her nor will I forsake her. And then he would offer gifts to her. He would give gifts for her to treasure and to have, and he would then drink the cup of redemption with the father in agreement that the wife was now betrothed to this man. The betrothal period was sacred. It was just as marriage was. If you wanted to break off a betrothal, you literally had to serve divorce papers, though the marriage was not consummated yet wasn't complete. And so in that time period, he would have a betrothal with that woman, and he would say this to her once he was betrothed, once they took the cup of redemption and drank the cup of redemption, he would then say, I must go to my father's house to prepare a place for you, and when I come, I will bring you unto myself. That would be the consummation of the marriage. That's when he would come back. It could be up to a period of time of a year when he would return back. No one knew when except the friend of the bridegroom would blow the shofar. Many times it was at night, at midnight. And the bride would be waiting. Would there be a light in her window as he came over the hill and the bridegroom would look? Would he find faith in her house? Would he find a candle lit waiting for his return? And as the bridegroom would blow the shofar, it was to ready the bride and all her bridemaids to get ready because the bridegroom's coming. And Jesus made the announcement through John the Baptist, he's here. And on the night of the Passover meal before he went to the cross, he made his covenant vows. He spoke them and when he went to the cross, he drank the cup of redemption for her. And he now went to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. We are his beloved. We're betrothed to him. And we're waiting for the consummation, the full redemption of our bodies, as Peter says, for his return. So what did he do? At this wedding, they ran out of wine. And so Jesus goes and, and tells them to pour the water. It's been seven days. It was seven days at this wedding feast. They had drank through all the good stuff already. Now, wine as a drink back then was to purify the water. They didn't have, you know, Absopure. They didn't have uh, uh, smart water. They didn't have good water. They didn't have it purified, so they would cut it with wine. Typically, uh, one part wine to 20 ounces or percentage to, to water, one to 20. And it would kill and cut uh, uh, that water so it was drinkable and so it was good. But that, that's the typical wine that was given. But then there was the good wine. And, and, and typically, they'd serve the good wine first. So everybody was impressed. Hey, this is nice. And then once everybody got relaxed and had a good time and was eating, they'd start pouring the cheap stuff. 
It's when the Mogan David came out, and that's when they, <laughs> they started serving that, and people didn't pay. They're just having fun. It's great. So when Jesus came along, and Jesus turns the water into wine, people are amazed because this is the best wine they ever tasted. And they're so impressed at this wedding, they said, how is it that you would serve the best wine last? It's usually first. The best is yet to come, brothers and sisters. The best is yet to come. There's an outpouring of wine that's coming to his church. The best is yet to come, I can tell you that. Huh. And it's interesting, in Luke 5, talking about the, the wine, Jesus said, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new. He says, oh, that old stuff's better. What he's talking about specifically is just that wine, the quality, the quality of that wine. It's pure, it's good. And so, Jesus is the bridegroom, and we're the bride. Now, back to our text in Mark, Jesus goes on to continue to discuss, and he says this in verse 21, after talking and saying that he is the bridegroom, he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What's his declaration after talking about should they feast or fast? He's feasting because the bridegroom's here. This is the marriage. This is the betrothal period of Messiah for the people. He came for the sick, not the well. He invited all of them to be betrothed to him. And he, being that bridegroom, has, has called them. And he said, look it, you don't get it, Pharisees. He said, I didn't come to, to uh, re-strengthen the law. He said, I came to fulfill it. I came to complete it. I'm not putting a new teaching on an old teaching. I'm not taking a new covenant and putting it on an old covenant. The old covenant is complete. I am the completion. I am the fulfillment. There is a new garment to wear. There is a new wine. And I'm not putting it in the old wineskin. I'm the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament called for. I am the Sabbath rest. I am the diet of your life that is holy and pure. I am the one who sanctifies you. I am the tabernacle, the showbread, the light uh, of the menorah. I am the Ark of the Covenant. I am the pillar of fire by night. I am the burning bush. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. I am the one who sits on the throne of David. I am the one who is to come. I'm not putting an old patch on your stinking religion. And that's what the Pharisees had made the law. A religion. You can't sew a new piece of material on an old garment that has already been washed and has shrunk. You put a new patch on an old, gar on, on an old garment, and when you wash it, the, the new patch will shrink and tear where you were trying to mend. And it's the same thing with an old wineskin. An old wineskin went through the fermentation period. It expanded as far as it could expand while the wine fermented in it, and then it was good. It was done. Now, if you go to use it for another new batch of wine as you fill it up, that new batch of wine will ferment and the gases will push harder, but that thing had gone to its full expanse and would explode. 
The law was done, as the writer of Hebrews says, he made it obsolete. He fulfilled it or completed it to perfection in his life and in his ministry. He said, there's new wine here now. There is new wine. And you need fresh wineskins. They couldn't, they couldn't get their head around that. They, they had locked in Messiah to their definitions and their religious principles. God in the flesh was standing in front of them and they were rebuking God. They were rebuking God for what He said He would do. And they rebuked Him. He did everything the Father said. Every word He spoke, you can read in the Psalms, you can read in the Proverbs. These rabbis knew these words. These were not new words to them. Do you get this? These are rabbinical uh, uh, scholars who when Jesus would quote the Psalms and quote the Proverbs and quote Isaiah and quote all of them and he regularly did this and he would quote the Mishnah and quote rabbis and have discussions. They knew every word he spoke but he was applying them in ways they had never fathomed. And their old wineskin was so messed up. Aren't you glad we didn't have wineskins? We're so messed up in sin, we didn't have anything to put this wine in. But he came along and said, you're now going to be a container for the new wine. That's why he went to us. (laughs) That's awesome. Learn of me. Learn of me, he said. Oh, praise God. His His kingdom came with power. That's why when he came and dealt with the Sabbath, it blew him away. Their old wineskin went, don't understand this. When he came and healed the sick and cast out demons, it burst their wineskin. They couldn't figure this out. How do we contain him? When he began to declare what God's righteousness was and what his holiness was like and how God was reaching the lost and restoring Israel, burst their wineskin. They couldn't handle it. And he was giving them a warning. Now, it got through to a few of them. How many of you know that? There was a man, uh, right, named Nicodemus, who came at night and said, something's going on in me. Something, I'm, I'm getting this. I, something. So Jesus took them further. So Jesus was challenging them. How many of you have been challenged by Jesus Christ in your theological furniture, in your structure and construct of how you've learned and what you've been taught and what you've been told? God bless Sunday school teachers. God bless the church and everybody that's taught you. But if you're not learning from the Word of God and only religious tradition, your wineskin's going to bust one day and Jesus likes to break them. He wants to fill you to where you don't know what to do with this. It busts you open. Next thing you know, you're speaking praise you never knew you could speak. You're saying utterances and declaring prophetic words you didn't know you could because your wine, your wine skin busted all up. How many of you want to be filled with that new wine? Now, what does he conclude with? Is that it? There's, there's no more fasting? No, as a matter of fact, what he said is, while I'm here, we'll celebrate and not fast. But he says, when the, when the bridegroom is taken away, and when you look at the Greek word for taken away, it means an abrupt. It means an abrupt cutting off. Much like the, the book of Daniel says that he shall be cut off. 
And so when the Messiah was cut off, the bridegroom was taken away. He disappeared in the night to go to his father's house. He said, then you will fast. So there's a, there's a fast now that the, the children of the bridegroom, the, the wife of the bridegroom, the betrothed, the bride, there's a fast that we fast for. But it's a new fast. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16, he said at the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, you'll fast in this manner, not like the Pharisees. This is a new fast. This is a new wineskin. This is a new thing. You're my betrothed. He goes on, you remember this? He said, blessed are those who mourned, who mourn, they shall be comforted. We're to fast and we're to mourn. He said, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. You'll be filled. You're to fast and hunger for the spiritual things of the bridegroom. In other words, bottom line is, your fast now is a lovesick cry for your bridegroom. Oh, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. May your church be mature. May we rise to full stature as we fast and we're praying for the coming of our beloved. That's what we're consumed with now. The wine in us is fermenting into the pure joy of the wedding feast that is to come. The full consummation of our redemption is on its way. Jesus said that we're to hunger. Song of Solomon chapter 2, 5 says, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love for my beloved. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. He said, I, in Solomon 5.8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm sick with love for him. How are we fasting now? How are we living now in a hunger for God? I'm not mourning my sin issues. I I understand repentance. We do need to do that. We need to fast and repent for where we failed God. But I have forgiveness. I have the, the blood of Jesus to cleanse me. My fasting now is for the ripening of Christ in me. I repent of my sin because I never am going to go back, but I'm going to become shaped into the image of Christ. People think that if you give up this and give up that, then you're holy. You're not holy. You're just giving up things. But when I begin to bear the fruit of His nature, when I begin to produce love, when I begin to produce joy, when I begin to produce peace, when I produce patience, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, now I'm producing the nature of God in me. The wine is fermenting, it's aging, it's expanding, and it is, I'm in fasting for the hunger and the thirst of righteousness. Is that what you're fasting for? It's a new wine. Never had the Spirit dwelt within man until the resurrection of Jesus in the day of Pentecost. There's a new fast as we wait for our bridegroom. How many of you are lovesick for him? How many? I can't eat. I can't sleep. I need more. Give me a couple raisins. Give me a couple apples. But I just, 
I can't take it. I need my Jesus. I don't need a a Wednesday service. I don't need a Sunday service. I need a second by second response between me and Jesus. I want you in every thought and every breath I breathe. God, I come together to be with you guys. That's nice. It's good to see you. Hi, how you doing Sunday morning? Glad we're all together here. (laughs) But this doesn't, this isn't my relationship with Jesus. That's my relationship with you and us with Jesus. That's nice. I love you. But when this service is over, the next breath I take after this service, I'm breathing Jesus. The next thought I have, I'm thinking of my Christ. Well, you're a little bit of a Jesus freak, aren't you? Absolutely. I'm lovesick for him. My fast is to eat, drink, and sleep the wine of his Holy Spirit. When will the church fast for their bridegroom and be so intoxicated with his love? Oh, let us bow our heads, Father God.